So I'm delighted for you to meet Belinda, who's been, uh, who's the founder, um, co-founder with the artist, um, and then uh, has pulled me into the gratitude blooming orbit. Um, and obviously, I think you know what she and the artist Eileen were able to create uh, around nature and art, and really connecting things at a more of an emotional level um, than a even mindful level, um, which I've really began to appreciate more and more. So just in the spirit of gratitude, Blooming, we'll start with one of the cards. Yeah, and I'm actually feeling very inspired. And Omar, we're, you know, the season two is all about emergence. And so I just would love to get your response to this prompt inspired by the nasturtium flower. Um, think of what friendship you cherish, what makes that friendship so special to you. And looking at the art as well, it could also be friendship with yourself. So curious what comes up. Yeah, um, it's a beautiful card and flower. The, the first friendship friend that comes to mind is my friend Jamie, uh, who is the co-host of my podcast or one of my podcasts. Uh, I've known him for, gosh, how long is it? It's been about, I think, 16 years now. So we met in 2006, I think. Yeah. And we've just been good friends, great friends, excellent friends ever since, pretty much. Um, we met through uh, an online poker forum. So we both playing poker back in the day. It, it was him and I and a few others, and we sort of immediately hit it off. We were roughly the same age and learning this whole poker world together and ended up meeting him in person uh maybe like six months a year after we started chatting online uh it's not that dissimilar from a lot of these nft communities now we sort of meet people and make friends online and oftentimes from very close friendships before you even meet them before you even speak to them in person or anything like that um <clears throat> but yeah and, and then we've sort of just been really close ever since just had an ongoing um like, there's never really been a a bad patch in the friendship or a rough patch we've never really fought it's just we, we sort of like get each other on the same wavelength on a lot of things um yeah and and it's been 16 years strong and uh i'm very grateful for that friendship and what specifically makes that friendship so special like is there a moment or an instant that kind of illustrates the connection that you have i can't think of a specific moment but like we sort of uh we just chat all the time. And, and like both of our partners are always making fun of us whenever we meet up in person about how we talk to each other more than we speak to them. But like, we just like, we moved from one messaging program to another. I think it was like AOL as a messenger back in the day. It was, um, might've been WhatsApp for a while. It's been Viber for the last several years. And it's just like, just nonstop. We just have this unending conversation that's been running for like 15 years and it's just like, it, it, we just, whatever happens in our lives, whether it's um, something small or something big, we're, we're just talking to each other about it. Um, and, and sort of whether it's, uh, I don't know, just sharing the experience and just having a, a friend there to, to go through life with. And I think we sort of get each other. Um, like we, we sort of have the same mindset and approach to so many things in life so that yeah, it's, we like a lot of the same things. We both like games, video games, board games. We're both big foodies. We both like reading a lot and, and have, like, I think, a pretty analytical and logical mindset. And 
you know, we went through poker together, we went through all sorts of video games together, we went through, got into NFTs together and, and just sort of, yeah, it's just like partners in crime, I guess. I love uh, an unending conversation because I feel like when you can have an unending conversation, that's just, I couldn't imagine anything better than that because it sort of allows just an emergence uh, to unfold. So maybe just to give um, a little bit of context, um, if you could share how you went from poker, you're also uh, went to law school, correct? Oh, wow. And and then, you know, have moved into NFTs, hardcore sort of trading, but then really is an academy about building community. Um and then that's really exploded to sort of education. And, and now I see you're a partner at a new trading um, group. What is that sort of through line just to help give people a sense of that journey? I got into poker when I was 17. So like it's still the last year of high school. And then the plan for poker was to go to university, study uh, law. Uh, I was actually doing a commerce and law degree. And actually started it um, and then sort of like live that life. And then I found poker with some friends just playing it and, you know, we were having fun and I realized I could make some money out of last year of high school. And then um, started playing more and more online and, and sort of was having obviously a lot more fun and, and enjoying that a lot more than going to university <clears throat> as an 18-year-old. So um, after six months of, of the university lifestyle, I was like, you know what, let, let me just drop out. Um, and I'll take a break. I think I said to take a six month um, break to explore poker, travel because I could play on my laptop and just see where it, where it goes. And I never, never really truly went back after six months. I did technically go back to, to study again um, in large part to placate my mother. Cause she, she really wanted that. And it, you know, we have a good reason. I think <clears throat> professional poker player, professional gambler is not the most stable or in, in many instances, not the smartest life choice to make at 18 or 19. Um, but I remember it was about 45 minutes into my very first lecture back. It was, uh, I think an accounting class. Cause again, commerce was the degree and they was like teaching us how to use Microsoft Excel. And I, I just, I couldn't take it. So I was like, <laughs> all right, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm out. And so I just walked out and then didn't really go back to university again for like a decade and, you know, played poker and found success, uh, largely playing online. Um, and, and traveled and, you know, had a life and, and could make good money. And then um, after about a decade of playing, so like this would have been 2016, I think, um, I it, it had been like enough and like uh, I, I'd been getting a bit sick of it for like the last few years and it, it had turned into like a grind. And I think like anything you do for a long period of time, like no matter how amazing the job is and by all accounts, professional poker players, fun and exciting and interesting and has a lot of benefits to it. Um, it did become like uh, something I didn't like. I, I never really wanted to be doing it for the rest of my life. I didn't never wanted to be fifty and still playing poker. But I didn't have any like skills. I didn't have any other experience or education or talents or anything specific to to sort of lean into. So I just sort of kept playing poker. But eventually, I was like, you know, let me let me try do the the university thing again. And I went back to law school um, because you know, law was always something that interested me, fascinated me, excited me. It was like in high school, my favorite subject was legal studies. Uh, I'm a big fan of reading and writing and, and you know, obviously it's a lot, do a lot of that with law and understanding um, 
logic and, and all sorts of stuff like that, definitions. So I said, let, let me try it out. And uh, actually, I stuck with it for about, I think it was a year or might have been 18 months, a year and a half, three semesters um, in 2016. And the first semester, and it was just like this gradual decrease in excitement. Like the first semester, I loved it. I was like, this is super <laughs> interesting and exciting and easy. And I got like amazing, like perfect grades. And I was like, this is awesome. And then the next semester, it got harder and less interesting. And it got like more dry. And as I got deeper into the actual law degree, um, you know, when it comes to like reading long court cases and, and um, decisions and contract law and uh, like all the nitty gritty that obviously is not the fun or exciting part of law. Um, it, I just sort of like started losing interest a bit and it got more difficult and I just didn't have that deep enough desire to stick with it. Um, <clears throat> so I just sort of like, uh, I think what ended up happening was my first semester I did four um, subjects and then I dropped one and so I did three in the second semester and I did two in the third semester and then I was like all right, you know, clearly this is not something I'm passionate enough about to stick through the degree let alone make a career out of it so I went back to poker um, in uh, 2017 and I was still, like playing throughout as well um, playing poker while I was, I was studying and then um, yeah just keep that can down the road for another couple of years uh, maybe two or three years and then it was early 20. 21 um when I, I really found nfts i guess um and i'd heard about crypto and got into crypto a little bit in 20 um 2017 i think 2016 so actually now that i'm thinking about it I'm, I'm trying to remember the timeline maybe i was i was in crypto at the same time i was studying law or i think not but anyway um I, I dabbled a bit i never seriously got into crypto back then and so that when that 2018 bear market hit, I just sort of like lost interest and then again, stuck to poker. Um, but then early 2021, I started to hear about NFTs through my friend Jamie um, because he had some mutual friends that had been like in the space. They never really left and, and they were talking to him about NFTs. And so he asked me, you know, have you ever heard of Half Mask, which is an NFT project that launched early uh, 2021? And I had not. And I was like, what's that? And he showed me some, some images and I was, you know, and, and how much it costs. And I was like, thinking this is some scam, this is Ponzi, this cult, you know, you know, thousands and thousands <laughs> of dollars. And then he showed me CryptoPunks, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and, you know, my first reaction for, I think it lasted two or three weeks was, you know, oh, are, are your friends still involved in this, you know, uh, Ponzi or uh, uh, this cult? Are they still throwing their money away at JPEGs? But eventually I sort of, you know, came around. I, I read a few articles that really clicked for me and, and did some more research on my own. And I was like, you know, there's something here. This, this, this is different. This is just different. This is a revolution. There's this tech here that's going to change the way everything operates. Um, and I think that would have been around March, April last year is really when it just fully went down the rabbit hole. And I, I specifically remember making a conscious decision um, that, hey, I'm going to like dedicate all my time to like learning crypto and NFTs. And I, I specifically remember how in 2017, um, I uh, had wished I, I picked it up in like 2012 or 2011 or 2013 or whatever. And I was like, well, I, I, sort of, I saw history repeating itself a, a bit. And I was like, well, now I have this opportunity to like be on close to the ground floor or just understand this new technology. Um, and, and I still recognized crypto as a new technology. It still is now. Um, and I, I said, you know, this is, this is it. This is worth 
sort of like pivoting away from poker and dedicating all my time to figuring out um, and just seeing where it leads. And it's just sort of one thing led to another. And then here we are. <laughs> it's, it's been a wild year, 18 months. And it was a lot of like, a lot of learning and expensive lessons and mistakes. And then um, successful trading and flipping for a while and then creating content. And yeah, then launching Zen Academy and, and everything. Yeah, it's been wild. It's been a while, 18 months. And maybe if you could also give a little bit of context to your online name, Zeneca, right? Because that is very intentional and and maybe not clear how someone who has a huge fascination with poker uh, would come to such a name. Yeah. So it was March last year and I was sort of going to create a Twitter account because so much of the crypto and NFT space operates on Twitter and like uh, some of the earliest advice I got on, you know, getting into the space and learning more was you got to spend time on Twitter and you got to spend time in Discord. And that's advice I give to people now because I think there's so much of our space operates on those two social platforms. Um, and I had an account, but it was my old poker account. I hadn't really used it for five years, wasn't following the right people. Um, so I said, let me just create a new account. And, and the thing that many do in the space is come up with a pseudonym, a new screen name. Um, and so like, I was like, just, I think just looking around my room thinking for like, well, inspiration and what can I come up with? Um, and I'm a huge fan of Stoic philosophy and there's a Stoic philosopher, Seneca, um, with an S that is my favorite Stoic philosopher. I think I must've had a book of his on my desk or something like that. I was like, Hey, you know, maybe there's some inspiration here. I didn't want to just straight up copy the name Seneca. Um, besides it was, would have clearly been taken in this second. Um, and then I, I don't know where, maybe because COVID was rampant at the time and it was the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca, but <laughs> Zen <laughs> Zeneca came to mind. Um, it's sort of like an amalgamation of like Zen Buddhism and, and, and the, the Zen lifestyle plus Seneca, the Stoic lifestyle. Cause I think Buddhism and Stoicism have a tremendous amount of overlap and, and similarities. And yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it all happened with, like within five or 10 minutes and I was like, Hey, let me just try that. And then um, Zeneca was taken. Um, and I went Zeneca 33 cause I was 33 years old. <laughs> yeah. People always ask about like, what's the symbolism behind 33 is three your favorite number. And incidentally, three is my favorite number. Um, although I'm not a, uh, I'm not big into numerology or anything like that, but, um, yeah, the, the, the short answer is I was, it's my age. (laughs) I love all the little breadcrumbs that led you to, you know, coming up with the name and the identity and the, and the space that you hold. And, and it kind of goes back to this friendship theme too, Jamie, encouraging you, you know, to check this out and tell us about that moment actually, because it is an interesting friendship moment. Yeah. I mean, let's see. I mean, I've gone back and looked at the chat logs, looked at the chat logs because, you know, like it's unending conversation and, and it was basically just that, you know, he just part of the conversation of the day. He just said, Hey, have you ever heard of hash masks? Uh, he technically actually said hash marks. So he got the name wrong. And I was like, <laughs> no. And then, um, yeah, it, it was just like this. It, he showed me, and then I, uh, I basically dismissed it, and it was like nothing for a few more days. And then I think he asked, you know, have you heard about NFTs or like hash marks and NFT? And so it's like some. Sort of, I was like, what is that? And he said, like it's some sort of way, to like um, it's like crypto, but images, or like you can have you can digital assets. So I can't remember exactly what he said. And I, was, I still was very skeptical. And then eventually, he shared an article. He read an article. 
um, called Power to the Person by Packy McCormick, who's a great, great writer. He has a Substack called uh, a Substack newsletter called Not Boring, and um, it was all about the creator economy and Web three and and how NFTs will unlock this um, uh, just this economy, this this amount of creativity and um, this ability for people to sort of buy and sell goods online in a way that was never possible before. And and he basically said, I, I read it and like my I've now sort of like done a 180 and changed my opinion. Because he was again very much like me thinking it was all a scam and a, a Ponzi. And then so then I read it and I was uh, I, I think I was less immediately um turned around, but I was like, all right, I, I see that there's something here. And then over the course of a week, um sort of came around full circle and started going deeper and deeper. Um, but I, I was going to say, even going back further, I'm pretty sure the reason I got into Stoicism was probably because of Jamie, because he read and raved about um, Meditations, a book by Marcus Aurelius. And, and I remember thinking, hey, I should probably read that someday. And then actually, for whatever reason, didn't read that until after I read um, some of Seneca's work. But um yeah. Anyway, could you, for maybe folks who are not familiar with Stoicism and Seneca, give your sort of interpretation of his work and and what about it resonated with you uh, at a personal level? Yeah. So Stoicism, to me at least, is sort of a philosophy and belief that we have control over very little in life. We can control how we react to things. And that's about it. We like we can't control anything that happens in the world. There's so much randomness and luck and and things outside of our control. But very often we end up um, attaching our emotions and reacting to things that are outside our control, and that leads to a lot of anxiety and fear and negative emotions because you have no control over it. And if you get like let's you know if you get upset because let me just think of an extreme example, like a meteor hits and crashes and destroys your house completely outside of your control. But obviously people are going to be very upset about it. But if that leads you into a spiral of depression and you sort of like can never let that go and think the universe is against you, the world is against you, life sucks and all that kind of stuff. It's just not a very productive way to look at it. And if you sort of flip it around and say, you know, well, that it sucks that it happened, but there's nothing I can do about it now. I can't change the past. That's outside of my control. Um, I can't go back and change what happened. I, I couldn't have pre- prevented it anyway. Um, I'm in this new position now. What can I do going forward? And it's, I guess, sort of about like not worrying about the past and all the future and just like trying to live in the present moment um, and, and aligning your emotions and feelings to what's in your control, which again is, is basically only your thoughts. And it sort of like reminds me of, um, I think therefore I am by the, the famous quote by Descartes. And it's sort of like, that's all you can really know at the end of the day. Um, and so if the more you sort of understand and think and, and realize that, um, I think the, the easier it is to sort of, you know, deal with life and go through life. And, and like I, I battled and dealt with like anxiety and depression and all sorts of um, mental health issues. And sort of, it was only by sort of, well, not only, but one of the things that really helped me was, reading stock philosophy and understanding this sort of like logical approach to looking at emotions and looking at the world and the universe about how, you know, what's in our control and what's not in our control. Um, and Seneca specifically, I think he just has uh, had an amazing way with words that sort of 
it made it easy to like understand and relate to some of the lessons and teachings he was trying to present. Um, almost like uh, he had this really poetic style and used a lot of analogies. And yeah, it was just sort of to me um, the 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 his writing is is the sort of the body of work that really cut through and sort of resonated most with me. But I, I mean, I love other Stoic philosophers too and other writers. It was just that I always had like a, a fellas closer connection or relationship to Seneca. I'm just really struck by how the legacy of this wisdom, you know, like you're quoting people from so long ago. I have friends that are like roomy fanatics. Like I can't even like say I don't like that quote because they'll just like go to battle for him. And I mean, it was such a long time ago. And and what I'm feeling in this moment is just this sense of timelessness around those guides around how we live life. How do we be as a person? How do we navigate struggles? And, and what I'm sensing from you and what you're talking about in the, the way that you're holding the space and looking at the future is, you know, what is the time, what is the thing that we are all going to create that is timeless, you know, thousands of years from now. And, you know, I, you strike me as someone who goes by, passion and you don't need school to help you figure out stuff. Like if you're passionate about something and you believe that it's going to work or there's a reason to study it, then you're going to go and do that thing. That's what I'm feeling from your, you know, educational experience. And so as you're now in this place of building a new world, you know, through web three and beyond, you know, of in the communities, the physical communities that you're cultivating, like what is what is the timeless creation that you hope to build? And for you know people thousands of years from now to say, oh, wow, like still talking about it. <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> I think sort of the beauty of it, but also the, 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 well, the whatever of it is that I'm not sure that there is anything that we can sort of say that hasn't already been said. And it's like there's a reason it, we're still talking about Stoic philosophy from 2000 years ago. And there's a reason it still resonates now is because it's just, it's, it accurately describes, I think, the human condition. And the, to my mind, the best way to approach the human, like the, the, to approach life. And, you know, obviously life back then is extraordinarily different to how it is now, but our emotions and thoughts and feelings haven't changed that much since then. And I don't imagine that will change that much a thousand years from now, 2000 years from now, um, at least as far as humans are involved. Um, so it, it's almost like, uh, and, and a lot of like my writing and things that I, I constantly create, um, that people that, that like resonates well with people and people seem to appreciate. It's not n- new things. It's just like taking what they wrote thousands of years ago and then applying it to today's situation. So it's not, it's not like necessarily coming up with new philosophies or new ideas. It's, it's again, like they figured it out. <laughs> and, and, and the beauty of it is it wasn't just one school of philosophy. And this sort of, this is where Buddhism and, and sort of that comes into play. It's like this, these same ideas have been figured out by different people independently throughout history and they've survived till now. And that doesn't happen unless there's something really sticky about them and powerful and something that resonates with, with people. Um, 
obviously there are certain ideas that have survived that may not be as as virtuous in my mind, but um, the fact that the principles of Stoicism have and Buddhism, um, I think speaks volumes. And I think that they'll still be around thousands of years from now. Um, and I have much less confidence that anything that I can do or say will be around in a few thousand years other than um, continuing to um, be a messenger for like what they said back then. Um, yeah. It, 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 an interesting conversation begins when you start to think about like artificial intelligence and like what philosophy and AI looks like and, and what the future looks like. Cause I think we are an interesting point in history, which where technology is reaching a tipping point, as they say, or like, uh, yeah, this new era where it's, it's almost impossible to comprehend what the future might look like. And, and then how AI artificial intelligences might think of the world and, and they don't have the same feelings and thoughts and emotions that humans have. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to think about. I think it's all just, um, it's largely guesswork at this point because we don't know exactly what that future will be like, but, um, yeah, it's, I hope, I hope we get to live to see it. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. So your sort of reference points with like Buddhism and, um, stoicism, do you have a regular practice? Um, or, or how do you try to sort of embrace this in a day-to-day way, um, if at all? So I would say I don't have a, a day-to-day practice. I have at various points over the last, say, six years, I think, when I first started reading stoic literature. Um, I've had various types of practices, where it's daily meditation, um, even like a, a specific stoic meditations is one where you sort of like sounds morbid but you like envision your death and then <laughs> sort of become accepting of death and and like i did that for a little while um daily journaling and writing and, and all that kind of stuff and uh they, they've certainly helped and and are good when i do them but for the last couple of years maybe two or three years now um i, I haven't really had any sort of daily practice for any consistent amount of time other than it just sort of it's sort of reached a point now where it just sort of like it's it's just my default theme running through my head is now like to look at life through a, the lens of stoicism and to take any situation that occurs and like try, and I don't always succeed, but try and apply a stoic philosophy to it. So if something bad happens, instead of being upset, annoyed, disgruntled, just think about why I shouldn't be that way and like why things are still fine and okay and life is still good and how, again, I get to, again, control what I, I what what can I control? That's how I react to things. And so, like, like yesterday, we just flew back from America. Uh, took us like thirty hours because flight got cancelled and delayed, and we got rebooked on a new flight. And then our bags got lost. And you know, sure, it's annoying and and frustrating, and you know, you can be upset about it. But at the end of the day, man, I was just sitting. On, I was literally laying on the floor at the airport and watching a movie on my phone, waiting like two hours to hear from the, the people about our bags just making the best of the situation. It's like, you know, you can, you can get angry and you can lash out at someone. It's not going to do any good. You can be upset. That's not going to do any good either. So it's just sort of like whatever happens, just trying to as quickly as possible be okay with the situation. And that doesn't mean that you sort of don't feel negative emotions or ignore them. Cause I think that's dangerous to sort of just completely blanketly uh, ignore negative emotions. And I think that it's important to 
feel them, but also to sort of, it's powerful to be able to move past them and focus on the positives uh, or just the neutrals even. Um, and again, understand what's, it all comes down to like what's in your control, what's out of your control. And again, like it's, it's anything in the past is not in our control. So I think like that those two core simple things, it's like, sure, like we could have added air tags to our luggage so we could attract it. All right, cool. Maybe in the future we can do that. We could have, you know, tried to get on a different flight home. We could have, you know, booked a day early. We could have done so many different things, but none of that is something that we can change now. So it's outside of our control. So there's no point feeling upset about it. It's just like, what can we do now? Maybe what, what, what can we learn from that? That's a beautiful outlook to like be in the moment of that frustration and try to like see it, you know, in a bigger way. Um, in in a lot of the Web3, you know, conversations we've been having, and I think this is also a Web2 thing as well, like there is a struggle around how do you live your life like on screen, off screen and find that right balance and in a way that like doesn't create more anxiety and, you know, in these times where, where it's just so much chaos and volatility, like a, you name a system, it's like crumbling, you know, like how, how, how do you handle that in a day-to-day kind of way? Because like for me, I'm introverted and I'm more I'm empathic, so I feel other people's emotions. And so it's, it's like there's so many things I have to do to kind of be with all of that. And so I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, how do you, how do you hold it? for yourself i don't know <laughs> um <laughs> that's the short answer I'm, I'm introverted as well and empathic and and i've sort of struggled most of my life up until i'd say a few years ago um with dealing with just the barrage and the deluge of just life that attacks you from every moment um from every direction rather and uh it yeah it, it had been a struggle i i, I um yeah, like I mentioned before, I went through anxiety and depression for most of my teenage years and most of my twenties. Um, I ha- had a dependency on alcohol for a long time, and I was just like, when I couldn't handle it, I was like, let me just escape and like drink and you know, not worry about it um, for a little while. And then, yeah, just through some miraculous combination of years and years of therapy, trying different antidepressants until I found some that I could stomach and that worked. Um, reading Stoic philosophy quitting drinking it's like whatever this combination of all these things has led me to, to be in this place and thankfully i've been in this place for like i don't know two two and a bit years where i felt just able to handle life <laughs> and uh, i i don't know what the the secret answer is or if there is one it, it, it's just like it's 30 years of, of dealing with it and figuring out how to cope and thankfully i feel very fortunate that i found a way to cope and sort of every day sort of appreciate life and deal with like just it, it almost sounds um like it's not apathy like I, I don't not care but I I can sort of not care enough to be consumed by it. it's just like there's a lot of bad stuff happening in the world but I can't necessarily change it um I can do little bits to help here and there and I can try and do that and that makes me feel good um, but it's like at the end of the day, there's so much, again, it all comes out of control. There's so much outside of my control. Um, and I can't, especially can't change the past. So just continually focusing on, you know, the present and what I can do and being grateful for, um, the many, many, many things there are to be grateful for in life. 
Um, just the fact that we're here is just like that's a miracle in itself. It's like ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's just I, <laughs> a lot of lot of just trial and error, and, and fortunately, I found myself in this space. And who knows if I'll still be here? Like, you know, if something could happen in six months or five minutes, and spin my world upside down, and, and I could spiral again. But um, I like to think I have a control handle on things, and I, I do right now. But you know, life has a funny way of, of you know, what's that? It, whenever you make plans, God laughs or something. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. Who knows what what's what's the future will bring? Um, yeah, the, it's it's impossible to know. I could get like. Uh, brain aneurysm and die in two minutes or like I, I could have an undiagnosed mental disorder where my, my thinking faculties degrade and then that's probably like that's one of the worst things where you, you know you just if all you have is is your thoughts and your reactions to things what happens when your brain starts working against you and you can't react in a way that you want to um so that's tough but you know fortunately i i'm not in that position right now and there are people out there who are so you, know, you just feel grateful for your health and yeah just making the most of the moment you wrote a piece uh, titled Infinite Regret, which kind of went viral, whatever that term means these days. And, you know, it seemed to really tap into the moment. And this was even in some ways before inflation and recession conversations were really sort of everywhere. And, you know, I think part of what was fascinating, you've probably one of the most successful NFT traders around um and even you feel infinite regret and and so maybe share a little bit about what does it feel like to have the success that you've had and still feel all the emotions right because if some people are like hey once i achieve this then i won't experience x y or z and part of what you were sort of unveiling or showing behind the curtains was like you can have a lot of success and still feel these things. Yeah, um, I think it's it's something I learned back as a poker player. Well, like I wouldn't say maybe not learn, but a struggle as a poker player is like there would be a lot of times where I was making a lot of money and just I wasn't happy, and it was like it was trying to straddle with those two realities, and then like and then I would get mad at myself and be like, well, why aren't you happy? There's so many people who have less and who are less fortunate than you, um, and just like struggling with that. And I think that. Um, getting into NFTs and, and dealing with a lot of the similar things where it comes to like making money, losing money, almost making a lot of money, um, almost missing out on losing a lot of money. There's so many different results and realizing that, you know, again, most of it is not in our control. Almost none of it is in our control. Um, and I guess uh, even though I had found a lot of success trading NFTs, there are still moments every single day, every single week where I feel regret at, like little bits of regret, like uh, regret's a funny word. Cause in some respects, I don't regret anything because like, I'm in a really happy place and good place in life. So if I regret something, that means that I wish it was different. And then if it were different, I might not be where I am right now, but insofar as like specific events and, and feeling regret um, in the moment that that's something that I feel. And I think everyone feels, especially in the NFT and web three space, if you're, trying to make money or investing or buying and selling anything and for any market. Um, basically it's impossible to time the top and time the bottom. And almost no matter what decisions you make, you're always going to have been able to make a slightly better one or a vastly better one. And I think understanding and accepting that is, is really useful and helpful in sort of dealing with 
the reality that is that you're going to make imperfect decisions all the time because it's almost impossible to, to like I said, time the top and, and sell at, at the peak. And, and there's so much that no one knows and no one can know about so many different things. And, like, again, like I, I have found a lot of success in this space and still it, it, throughout my journey as well as where I am right now, every single day I have regret at, at things and, and like, oh, I should have sold such and such yesterday or uh, I should have sold during the bull market or I shouldn't have bought this or I phoned it into that um, or I should have bought more of this or, you know, I should have sold more of that. And I think everyone goes through these thoughts and feelings pretty much. I, I've yet to meet and I doubt I'll ever meet someone who, who doesn't um, or someone who gets it right um, every single time. But um, And so I think that's part of why it sort of resonated with so many people and, and sort of quote-unquote went viral because it's something that we all feel. It's just like... Everyone feels it. It's just impossible. It's almost impossible not to. Um, it's it's possible to sort of feel it and then move past it quickly, accept it, and and I think that's. But it's hard to do that unless you understand that it's happening and other people are going through it, and that it's inevitable and it's outside of your control. And once you understand that, it's easier to move past it and be accepting of it and be like, okay, well, I didn't make, I didn't do what I wish I had done. I can't change that. What can I do going forward? Can I make different decisions or better decisions? I feel like you've just outlined the art of imperfect decision-making, right? Which is like, how do I make the best imperfect decisions? And knowing that you're never going to have complete information. And so how do you sort of make the best sort of decisions in an environment that is constantly sort of changing and in a way that is very sort of present, um, uh, present-minded. Um, so part of what gratitude blooming is the connection to nature. Um, and so I'd be curious, A, do you have a specific kind of connection to nature? And, and, and if so, what is it? I wouldn't say I have a very specific connection to nature. I, I've historically not been a very like, outdoorsy person. Um, I hate spiders. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I love being outside though. I like touching grass as the mean goes in the space. I really do think it's important and valuable. Um, I don't do enough of it. Yeah, I guess in terms of a specific connection to nature, something I think about somewhat often is just sort of like the, the vastness of the entire universe and like space and like the miraculousness that we exist in, in this time, in this space, um, you know, the universe existed for 14 odd billion years and you know, we're existing for like, you know, a micro nano fraction of a split second of time. Um, and then we're, we're gone and like, and then it's over. And it's just like, when you, again, look at things in that perspective, it's easy, uh, to zoom out, I guess. And like, uh, view the perspective of, you know, oh, maybe stubbing my toe is not that big of a deal at the end of the day, you know, or maybe losing my bag, the airlines losing my bags, it's not that big of a deal at the end of the day because, and I don't mean to sound apathetic again, but like we'll be gone in like a blink of an eye and and we weren't here a blink of an eye ago. So it's like, yeah, that perspective helps, I think. I really am uh, feeling this word surrender in what you're saying. You know, it's like this high, this form of letting go and in uh, in life and just even the way that you practiced at one point just imagining your death 
and, you know, just being with the end <laughs> in such a physical way. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's like, I, I don't know if I believe in like fate or like that everything happens for a reason or that like, you know, it, it's all been preordained, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just like life is going to happen and basically none of it's in your control. So yeah, surrender and just enjoy the ride, I guess. It sounds almost cliche, but it's, yeah, it, it's, it's helpful, I think. And it, 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 it's dangerous though. You can, you can sort of, um, and I've done uh, in the past spiral beyond, I think a healthy point where like I stopped caring about anything and was just like, well, if, you know, if we're going to be dead in the blink of an eye and, and there's nothing we can do about it and nothing's really in our control then why bother or why care about anything? And you can get down a real nihilistic path and um, uh, lead to a lifestyle that's, what's that word where you're like indulging all the time and just like, you don't care about. It's gluttony. <laughs> yeah, gluttony. There's another word for it. It's hedonistic? Amazing. Yes, it's hedonistic. Yeah, you, you, can, you can end up in a really hedonistic, place if you if you're if you don't care about anything um which you know it's fun for a short minute but um while we are going to be dead again at the blink of an eye we still have hopefully you know 50 70 80 years and you know again in perspective that's you can do stuff in that time and the hedonistic lifestyle is maybe good for a week but not you know 50 years i appreciate your balancing of non-attachment versus not caring right so learning to still be present and feel the emotions and learn to sort of be non-attached or at least be aware of how you want to react uh to the emotions as they arise because there is such thing as spiritual or emotional bypass right which is like oh i'm not going to feel everything i'm gonna like sort of transcend it versus like, no, I'm going to be in it and part of it and experience it, but also recognize like what is too much and and what is enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like, I've been through the whole spectrum. So I, I, again, like at various points, I specifically remember, I think um, this is actually back at when I was back at law schools, so like 2016, maybe. Um, there was, I don't know, a period of a few months where I really just went too far and like just stopped caring about anything and went full hedonist. It was like just drinking all the time and blowing money like there was no tomorrow. And and like it, 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 part of me believed like, well, it could all be over tomorrow and, and just didn't care about anything um, really. And it was honestly really fun <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> Until it wasn't. And then, you know, eventually it all catches up to you and, you know, you get hit with an awful hangover or, you know, you look at your bank account and and, and you realise, well, okay, either, you know, either it's all going to be over in, in a couple of months and, like, this this path will literally lead to death or I can, you know, make some changes and, like, try and prolong this for 50 years. Um, yeah, honestly, it, it was fun. I don't recommend it. And, but I did. I learned a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a good experience to have. 
Well, we've asked you a lot of questions and I'd love to open up the space for you to ask us any questions or share anything that we didn't cover. It's you know, a lot of room to share. Uh, I'd love to know your thoughts on Stoic philosophy or any philosophy. Um, do either of you sort of have a strong belief either in Stoicism or something else? Um, I would say for me, I live more um, in my heart. So it's hard for me to use words to describe feelings. Um, I appreciate Omar because he can really give those beautiful words that, you know, that describe how I feel. What I feel um, most drawn to in terms of like a life uh, guide is really looking at the cycles of change in nature. And I think a lot of a lot of poets and these philosophers and, you know, Kung Fu masters, they all kind of started looking at just nature, you know, the stars, the cycles of the seasons, and and then kind of extrapolated that into like life principles. Like there's so many Confucian Chinese fables that talk about, you know, how do you live your life? How do you navigate things? And I think the simplest form that has worked for me has been really seeing how nature responds to change and like what is really the flow of life. And I have the honor of like living in Mount Shasta mostly full time. And, you know, there's a creek that flows on the land and I see how the water moves and, you know, and when different seasons it's lower, sometimes it's higher. And, and, you know, like, how do you be in your flow? Like, that has been the thing that I have been sitting with in my life is like, how do I do that without efforting? Because so much of our society, especially Western culture, is pushing productivity in a way where it's like, you know, if you will yourself to this goal, like it will just happen. And it's very like you're saying, like control. It's all about us having this control. Whereas like every day I get to walk outside my door and I see how the the water is responding to the rocks and how is this how are the trees dealing with the wind and it's just happening. And so I think um, maybe more Buddhist in that way of looking at the, you know, relationship with, with land and nature and um, imagining like, what did our ancestors, like, how did everybody come up with all this stuff? You know, like, how did they live? So I'm, I'm working actively on how to integrate those really old practices, like remembering them, and then like, well, how does that apply to my life? Because I can't, I don't really want to grow vegetables and like spend all day long, like, you know, farming. Like that's clear. That's not my life path. Um, so how do I take some of the ideas around that? Like idea of sustainability and being with the earth, but but in a more, you know, modern day context. <laughs> like I'm okay with the grocery store or the farmer's market. You know, I, I'm glad I'm glad somebody else is doing it. And I can enjoy that and have gratitude for that. <laughs> uh, what comes to mind with that question is uh, I remember watching this YouTube clip between Deepak Chopra and uh, Sadhguru. And they were on this, just the two of them panel. And the moderator asked them this question because I guess they had been on this panel 20 years ago. And she said, you know, how has your chain, how has your thinking changed in the 20 years since you two were up here? And Deepak goes first. And he probably talked for like 
30 to 40 minutes. Wow. And I think it was a single sentence um, because there was no period, maybe some commas. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was very, it looped around a lot of different directions. And then Sadhguru went and he said, I try not to think. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. I love that. That's amazing. And and so, you know, I, I feel like I'm I'm trying to balance that sort of thinking through things and then just being present with things. Um and you know, and I think the challenge is like how do you make a living doing that? Right. Like I'm not a I'm not Sadhguru philosopher um, who, uh, you know, and so, but that to me is sort of a fascinating sort of transition. And this is to me what's also interesting about Web3 is can we create different kinds of economies that allow people to offer their gifts for who they are, not necessarily what they produce? Um, and And I think that, you know, that to me is the, to use Belinda's terms, the sacred economics that we've, we've, we've had one form of capitalism define what industry looks like and productivity looks like. Um, and, you know, you, I think you talked about Rene Descartes, right? And 400 years ago, he said, I think therefore I am. And he had a very mechanistic sort of worldview and, in that sort of worldview, he's like the universe is like a clock, and we're the clockmakers. And I think he was very wrong. <laughs> we're, we are hardly the clockmakers. And so, how do we actually transition our economy into one that isn't so mechanistic um, and allows us to have a more organic, for lack of a better word, way of growing and creating? Um, in an ecosystem kind of approach uh, as opposed to a factory sort of widget driven one. Yeah, no, I love that. I think, I think web three offers opportunities there that no other model has offered. I, I don't think it'll solve all the issues, but it definitely will solve, won't solve most of the issues, but it might solve some of them and, and present and provide new models that uh, weren't literally weren't possible without it. So, and, you know, part of what you're already doing is obviously like building community and being able to show that you can be your full self, right. And talk about mental health and not just about sort of gains and losses. Um, because I think that is, you, you are definitely for someone who um, focuses on, I can't control the world you are getting to sort of create an opportunity for how people think about how they engage in the world. Um, and, and so I think it's a beautiful and, and challenging kind of responsibility. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's interesting. And I like, I, I'm trying not to like very, very intentionally and actively trying not to make it about money um, as much as I can. Um, but that's the thing that attracts so many people to NFTs and crypto. Like it, it's so interesting. Like, most people get into crypto to make money um, for the most part. I would say like 95% plus. Um, and even within Zen Academy, 
Um, I've been very intentional about saying, you know, we're not an alpha server. I'm not going to tell you like what I'm buying and when to buy, you know, we're not going to put calls out. And, but still like most people there want to talk about projects and want to talk about flipping one of them. But so it's figuring out how to do that in tandem with like a holistic approach to learning about the technology and looking at what else the technology can do and what else we can do in life and then helping people beyond making or losing money. And yeah, it's, I don't think you need a ton of people to start creating a new different way, right? And so maybe the majority of folks are day trading and accumulating and flipping is the sort of excitement and the opportunity. But maybe there is that 2 to 3% that are early adopters that are about like, what are the new models for how we... And so how do you... I think that's the uh, that's the other side of the opportunity is that you've got your sort of mass market kind of like hey you know if you're going to do this might as well do it the best way possible, and this is a new economy and this is new technology, and it is going to afford different ways for us to kind of engage and like what is that maybe early adopter focus that you can also create space for and and are creating space for? Yeah, it really uh, doesn't take many people to sort of have a strong community or to change the world, honestly. It just doesn't take many. And I think that one of the beautiful things about Web3 and NFTs is there's hardly any people in the space right now. Like if you look at it compared to the number of people in the world or the number of people into almost any other thing, it's very few people. But I think that the space is making waves. And like again, it's like, I don't know, 50,000 people, maybe 100,000 people, maybe active in the space. And you have so many celebrities in the world now talking about NFTs. You have Disney and Adidas and Nike, biggest brands and companies in the world are interested in this whole new technology and space. And this is all, and if you go back like two years, let alone five or 10, it was only like, it was not that many people into crypto and who stuck around for years and years and years back then. Um, and they've changed the world and, and irreversibly and it's never going back. And I think that we're going to see that same thing happen, repeat over and over and over again with different models using the technology. Um, and, and that's one of the most powerful things about it is that like, like it's almost like a great equalizer where anyone can now um, have an idea or write some code or you know, if they can't write code, talk to someone who can and work with people, put the ideas out there, which can then become a reality, which can change the whole world. It's, it's really, really cool. I actually have an um, inquiry for you based on some, something that I've been thinking about. And I've been getting trying to get Omar's advice as well. And we were just talking about this right before this call. So I'm like, huh, maybe I should ask you this question. So I've been com- building community over the years, and it's mostly... Um, on through the retreat center. So people come, they're here, they, they're really serious about self-awareness and personal growth. And they're like, I know what, how I'm living my life isn't working. I need, I need to get away to like figure this out. So like, you know, we kind of hold, we're kind of a refuge for people. And a lot of folks are, you know, Bay area city folks that have been doing the nine to five for a long time. And, and they're like, okay, I need, I need to take, you know, figure something, a new way of living. And so over the years, we've built community who like want to actually help support and create more of these hubs all over the world. And we're very intentional about where we 
where, where we put the places. They're places that are usually very sacred. You know, Mount Shasta is a, a sacred site. It's an energy center on the planet. You know, we've got this idea to do like at least eight all over the world so that when things are become even more volatile or people have more and more people have these questions, like, how do I cross this bridge? There's this time and space for them. And, you know, real estate obviously takes money, you know, land stewardship. You know, my husband and I have been bootstrapping this for seven years. Like every dollar we make, we're reinvesting it back into the land. And, um, so now there's a small group of us that are like really trying to figure out, well, how do we do this in a way where we can have these different places in the world and really do right by the land? And, you know, some of them might have more of a permaculture, you know, grow food kind of focus. Others might be more meditation places. Um, I'm working with a local um person who's the son of the chief of the tribe that governs the land where we live near where we live. And he's also been doing like working on web three to think about, well, how do you buy back the land that was taken, you know, from native Americans and, and restore the water because California is one of the most manipulated waters (laughs) in the water systems. And he's trying to, you know, remove the dams. And so these are all like large scale, projects that actually require like working with governments and, you know, bringing the land back, trying new processes. So if you're in this situation where you actually want to, in the real world, cultivate this and and make it sacred, um, and you want to use web three as well as, as a means to do that, like, how would you even approach this problem? Yeah, it's tricky, Uh, but it is, I think something that Web3 is uniquely suited for in terms of, I think, raising money and and gathering people together around a central cause and issue, so like a DAO, right? Um, the, the, The infrastructure is kind of there and the idea is there where if you get enough people together to pull their resources, pull their monies, each have a vote in the usage of that money, and, and you can sort of, I think, we've seen a few examples of fundraising on really large scales when you get enough people interested in a, an idea. Um, and you can then, so like a Constitution DAO was a pretty fun example of that, a really exciting example where you know, this copy of the Constitution came up for sale and then someone said, hey, let's, let's try and buy it. Let's create a DAO. And I think they raised like $40 million or something in a week, something crazy. Maybe it was $10 million, maybe it was... I think it was 40 million. It was 40, yeah. And it it was just so crazy how quickly that came together. Like that's a lot of money by any any stretch of imagination. Um, and it was just it was it was just to buy like a piece of art almost is like this historical document. It wasn't to change the world, it wasn't to do something as significant or meaningful as you're talking about. Um the ironic thing is that unfortunately it seems like people will rally behind things like that and more meme ideas than real significant substantial change. Um, so it's, it's the, the most difficult thing is, I think it's going to be the same as it is in web two, web one, web zero is like getting enough people interested in, in sort of supporting it financially and um, with their time and attention, I guess we live in the attention economy and that's the most important part. But I think that um, it allows yeah, I mean, the, the opportunities and possibilities are there to like form DAOs and 
create, get people from all around the world excited and interested in your idea and supporting it. And then maybe some people who can't um, support financially, they can spend their time and, and sort of help be part of the DAO. Maybe the DAO employs people and pays people and becomes like a self-sustaining organism. And it's less of just a, like a um, one-off charity money raise thing. It's just like a whole movement where it's like, okay, so this maybe try and like um, restore or um, help one piece of land in one part of the world and that act, then acts as a proof of concept. And then people see, oh, hey, it, it works, it worked. Let's you know, add more resources, more money and go to other places and take the same model. Um, yeah, it, it's the, the, the possibilities are there. I think it's too early still. It's like in, in some cases where like we're, we're very early, we're too early. There's just probably not enough people, enough money, enough resources, enough time and attention to go around to support enough of these causes in meaningful ways. I mean, what, there's an NFT project that's uh, it's like one of the best projects I've ever seen, Nemus, and they're trying to sort of restore the Amazon rainforest by like buying land and and preventing it from being you know taken uh, destroyed, and and it's struggling to gain significant traction and momentum um, for many many reasons. But I think that the idea is amazing, and they're not stopping. So if they can prove that it works again as a proof of concept, then we'll get, um, again, like it, it's just, I think a case of being too early in whether it's one year, two years, five years, 10 years, when most of the world understands how DAOs work, like most people in, and most people in the NFT space don't even know how DAOs work. So I think it's, it's going to take a while, a while for education to catch up and for the infrastructure to get better. Um, like legally speaking, they're all, they're, they can be murky and messy depending on where all the people are from and all that kind of stuff. But um, eventually I think we'll get to a point where people can raise money and deploy capital to support things that they really believe in. And in a way that is with, with even less, with much less friction than traditional fundraising and charitable means. Um, like right now, if someone wants to support it, they go give money to a charity and then, you know, the charity has all sorts of running costs and then they don't know exactly who and when and where, but, you know, specific like singular causes can probably pop up and be like, Hey, we need to raise I mean, almost like Kickstarters, but for charities. And then if it's a DAO then people feel like, well, they actually will have a, a real say in what happens with the money. And I don't know this. Yeah. Long story short, I, I think that web three can, will be able to help, but it's probably um, a little too early for it to, Meaning, meaningfully happen in the next uh, few months. Yeah, you're kind of validating a hunch that I have, which is I've got to rally the people that I have now that are in the community. And most of the people I have are not Web3 people. And so I'm working with Omar to figure out what, how do we get an advisory council together? And these are people like we we see each other, we know each other, we trust each other. So there's already like basic level foundation like beyond you know mm -hmm. and so it's like educating them on the web3 way so i feel like i i feel like i'm going to get a better better results if i go that direction you know onboard people into the new model versus trying to find a bunch of random people in the wilderness of web3 yeah. to like you know like i need coherence yeah. so that that feels like i mean that's what i'm getting from what you're saying 100% yeah, I think uh, I've had so many calls in the last like two to three months, I think, where 
more people and projects are realizing that education is key and, and, and that we need to sort of, everyone needs to be working to sort of like help onboard new people to the space. Because for a while, I think a lot of people and projects got ahead of themselves and started creating and building these amazing things, but there weren't enough users, there weren't enough people to actually utilize the, the amazing things that were being built because it's so difficult to get into the space. It's like step one is knowing about crypto and NFTs. Step two is understanding and, and accepting that it's something of value. And then that's not a, uh, an easy step to overcome. A lot of people think it's a scam. It's a Ponzi. It's a cult. It's it's a, the grain of fool's theory. There's no real value. And the really tricky part is that they're right for like so many aspects <laughs> of the space, 90% of it. It's like there's so many scam projects and there's so much of it is just built on a house of cards and sand, but like the underlying tech is still there. So it's like getting through to people and getting them to see the underlying value. And then from there, it's like the actual logistics of interacting with Web3 in this new world and the technology. Like, and, and I think it's going to take a lot of, like the language is like this we use a whole other language. There's so many words and there's so much lingo and terminology that people outside of this space, the gas means a completely different thing if you're in Web3 and if you're not. Um, and just explaining all of that. And then the, the last thing I think is the infrastructure needs to improve. It's so difficult using like, even like MetaMask right now, like if you're used to it, okay, it makes sense. But if you're not, it's like, it's so tricky to use and utilize. And, you know, a lot of the protocols are like really unuser friendly. And yeah, it's, to get people into the space now, it's very much like a, a white glove hand-holding process where you sort of take people through one by one, they have 50 questions and you answer them. And then you, you go to the next person and try to get them in and they have 50 questions, but they're 50 completely different questions to the previous person. So <laughs> that, that's the tricky part. It's I had someone ask me a couple of months ago now, like, what are like the two or three questions that people ask you the most? And, you know, I sat and I thought and, you know, I couldn't come up with them because I thought, you know, if there were two or three questions everyone asked, it's great. I just put a website up, FAQ, this is Web3 done. But it's like everyone has 50 questions and everyone has different questions. So it's, it's that's what, that's the crux of why this whole learning curve is so steep. It's, it's, it's crazy. It really is. Well, it's been awesome to be on the journey with you, you know, from Discord to Twitter spaces to uh, our respective podcasts so uh, thank you it's- thank you no it's, it's been wonderful getting to know you over the last I don't know 50 years I think since <laughs> <laughs> I <know. laughs> uh, yeah and, and I appreciate you having me on here it's been really wonderful talking to you both <laughs> <laughs>